Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Angela Tarango, Manuela Ceballos, on pedagogy and teaching. For more information about today's talk, go to hdiopenplaza.org. Hi there, this is Angela Tarango, and today I am talking with Manuela Ceballos about pedagogy and teaching. Uh, Manuela, I'm really interested in the fact that you teach at the State University. You teach at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. And uh, what I would like to ask you is, what is particularly difficult about teaching Islam in a state university in the sort of South, as we would like to say? It's a border state, American South. Right, in Appalachia. Um, thank you, Angela. And it's good to talk to you. And thank you for your questions. Um, I think I didn't, I didn't know anything about Tennessee before taking the job. I had never been to Knoxville until my interview. And what is challenging about a state institution is that you get students from all different backgrounds. Um, for me, um, it was particularly challenging to teach at various levels, and I didn't know what my students knew or didn't know about Islam. Um, we have a heavy... Um, we have a, a large number of evangelical students who are very committed to their faith traditions and interested in missionary activity. And we have a number of veterans. And in Latin American universities where I grew up, we didn't have military uniforms in the classroom. So teaching veterans about Islam has been a really interesting educational experience for me. Um, the most difficult, I think, has been teaching the call to prayer just because, um, as I think I've, I've mentioned to some of my colleagues, the call to prayer is triggering for some of our service members or for some of the folks who have been on different tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I had no idea and no way of anticipating that. So that's little surprises like that where I don't know what I don't know um, have been biggest surprises and challenges. So how do you try to meet those needs, right? If yeah. it's triggering, how do you, when I mean, you have to teach them right. about the call to prayer, it's a fundamentally important part of Islam. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you try to work around those sort of triggering episodes for them? Well, um, in those particular instances, and this has happened a couple times, the first time my first year of teaching, I played the call to prayer, which is um, the... Um, call that Muslims hear five times a day that um, invite them to do their ritual prayer, right, the adhan. And it's in Arabic. And um, people are used to hearing it in movies. But normally what happens is in film, um, you hear the call to prayer in Arabic, and then there's an explosion. And I understand that for some of our service members, too, um, some of the military folks, um, this is also associated with their time in the Middle East, right? Which is not the same kind of experience that I had living in Morocco, where the call to prayer was beautiful and an invitation to reflection and meditation, a time of peace and stillness. Um, but to them, it meant something else. So I think oftentimes it's demystifying what mm -hmm. the call to prayer is. And then also working with our bodies. Why, why is it that we feel uncomfortable or afraid or scared when we hear certain things? Um, how do we racialize 
certain religious sounds and what do those fear what in addition to our own um, bodily reactions to it, what kind of negative consequences can that have on Muslims in the United States? And we know that noise ordinances, for instance, are frequently deployed against religious minorities as a way of keeping them in check. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And with that in mind, um, how? so you talk about the veterans, mm-hmm. but also you're Latina. Yeah. And how do you try to create bridges with both the Latina and the Muslim students at University of Tennessee, who I imagine are minorities right. uh, and really distinct minorities Absolutely. In, in that state school system? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I um, Those are very small minorities. Um, our students are primarily um, white from East Tennessee. Um, we do have a um, local Latino population and a local um, Muslim population and a small um, Latin American migrant population as well. A lot of the kids of those communities in the Latin American communities don't go to college, so I don't encounter them as students. Um, I am the advisor for the Muslim Student Association, which is a very interesting situation to be in because I am not Muslim, um, but nonetheless, um, I'm very close to those communities. And with my Latino kids, I mean, the veteran communities and the Latino communities overlap significantly, right? Um, So what I try to do is in the classroom, oftentimes we talk about giving up our power as instructors, but then what winds up happening is that the same kind of structures that are rep- that are existent outside of the classroom, where certain voices are valued and protected and um, expected, then become the same voices that are valued, protected, and expected inside the classroom. So I try and shift dynamics so that those students um, get to have a voice that is recognized as authoritative um, and try and do that through either different exercises where they become teachers or just through little gestures that encourage them to be able to speak freely. Can you talk a little bit more about your pedagogy in the classroom, some of your um, maybe assignments that uh, we were talking about this before that you consider sort of unconventional in the college classroom? Tell me more about them. Well, um, so I learned to teach by teaching language and literacy. And teaching language is very structured and um, very rigid in certain ways. Um, But when you start to teach language to adult communities who also need um, literacy training, then you have to be a little bit more creative. So once again, paying attention to to embodied knowledge becomes very important. So we do um, a couple exercises with calligraphy, for instance, and with... um, sort of relearning how to read. So I teach students how, which is the same way that um, non-Arabic speakers who are also Muslim learn how to read Allah on the wall or learn how to recognize what's at the top of the page in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, um, and are able to sort of pick apart certain words. So that's often fun. Um, I've brought calligraphers into the classroom to teach students how to use the traditional instruments, um, how to um, relate to the authority figures, the sort of bringing traditional pedagogy into the classroom so that they can learn how other people learn. And that's also an important form of knowledge transmission that we often overlook. Yeah, that's really quite fascinating. This, um, I, I love it, the idea that the students are doing 
Arabic calligraphy, right, in the classroom. <laughs> yes, lots of alifs. <laughs> lots of alifs. I think that's great. Um, how do students themselves react to these uh, assignments that some people might consider unconventional? Uh, you know, I've had a very generous group of students, I have to say. They're really patient with me um, because I don't know anything about their own backgrounds. And so I don't know anything about football. I don't know how to say the name of their mascot correctly. And I'm not going to butcher it here because I, I forget how to say that vowel. And so I think that because um, I, come in, I come in with a certain amount of humility that is necessary, they give me a fair amount of leeway. So if we build trust in that way, then normally they're pretty excited. At the beginning, they're confused. There's no structure. What is happening here? How am I going to get graded? Um, and I'm going to be terrible at doing this dot. Um, are you going to give me an F for it? And I think once they understand that I'm not there to trick them, then they're pretty open about learning in different ways and normally pretty excited and remember it. And yeah. Do they find themselves sometimes surprised when they're successful, when they discover a talent they didn't know they yeah. had? Some of them are actually incredibly talented. I've had one or two students that are very natural artists. I've had a couple that are really good poets because we do a fair amount with poetry too. And then also students are surprised when you read their work seriously. And so I've found a couple of very gifted writers, very gifted analytical thinkers that have no idea how good they are. And that's very different from other institutions, or other private elite institutions where students expect to be very good. My students do not. And when they are very good, they're surprised. And it's wonderful to see. It must be really incredibly rewarding, right, that you, you get to sort of find this raw talent there. Um, uh, in Tennessee, where maybe you didn't expect to see it. I'm just really lucky. Um, I've been very, very fortunate um, with my group of students. And, you know, they're, they have a different way of learning than I did and that my colleagues did and my um, fellow classmates did at the institutions that, that I went to. Um, they're actually curious. And they don't expect success monetary or otherwise. Um, so they're there because they want to be. Um, some of them want to make a decent living. That makes sense. But when they get invested in something, they, they do it with a fair amount of heart. So it is. It is really rewarding. But it's also, it's also educational for me. Right. I was about to ask you, so what has adopting all of this unconventional pedagogy and teaching Islam taught you as a professor? Well, I've learned a lot about my limitations as a teacher, um, the kinds of things that I'm not good at and that I should improve on. Um, but I think there is a way in which, yes, having a fair amount of control in the classroom can be very important, but there's wonderful things that can happen when you let unexpected interruptions um, and eruptions sort of flourish. And so I think being a little bit more um, relaxed about not keeping to a timeline or a schedule, even though it makes everyone nervous, can some sometimes be um, better for students and let them show actual talent that, you know, none of us knew they had. Great. Um, 
Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank I'm you, Angela. Really interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, the differences, everybody teaches at different places. We all have different experiences, and there's so much that we can learn from each other's experiences. And this, this is a great example of one way that pedagogy evolves, right, as you're in the classroom and you meet the needs of the student population that you are dealing with. So thank you so much for this conversation, Manuela. It was great. Thank you, Angela. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.